When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name's Sammy James and welcome to the show. Today we're going to be discussing Fulham's 2-2 draw at Craven Cottage against Bournemouth. An entertaining, frustrating but probably fair result in the end uh, against the Cherries. Definitely not what we'd have wanted going into the match, but when you consider that we were behind twice, probably, probably just about accept it. We'll also preview Thursday's game. Yes, Thursday's game uh, against Aston Villa in the Premier League. And we've got a stack full of your questions as well. Loads to get into. Defensive issues, Mitrovic... Kenny, there's an awful lot to discuss in today's podcast and here to discuss all of it with me. First of all, is Farrell Monk. Hello. Hello, Sammy. Hello, everyone. Hello, one and all. Dan Cook. Hello. Hi, Sammy. How are you doing? Fine. Thank you. And Izzy Barker. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for having me on. You two timed it yesterday. Football and boxing, I saw. Yeah, I'm just feeling a little bit fragile now for that, I can to say the least. I actually had a tinny before kickoff because I was so excited. Don't tell my bosses. And then I um yeah, I was giving it large at the boxing because there was a free bar and those are probably the most lethal words in the English language. So yeah, <laughs> I'm feeling it a little bit now. <laughs> um I, I don't know your bosses personally, but they might be capable of listening to a podcast. True. True. Uh, I feel like it added a bit of creative flair to my, um, it was inspiration juice for my report, for my brilliant report. So this is why you've got to where you are. You can always spin an answer, exactly. even backed into a corner, you still come out of it. I don't think I'll take that approach to my finance job tomorrow morning, I must admit. <laughs> Quick tinny at 8am before you uh, head into work, Farrell. Just to settle um, the nerves. Exactly. Yeah, they say why creative not? accounting is the best form of accounting, isn't it? First? Yeah. <laughs> Dan, let's do some three-word reviews from yesterday's draw. What were the best ones that came in? I went to Twitter. Uh, we had 122. quite good numbers. They're numbers that are usually reserved for a loss, which might say something about the result in general. Uh, but we had Elliot Jeffords, who went with wanted a defence, which I think was very valid. We had Zachary Gopst with 69% possession. Nice. <laughs> we had <laughs> Fulham in Japan with... <laughs> I thought I'd be able to hold it together with that one. Yeah, that, that was for you, Faz. I yeah. don't involve me. It's your choice. Yeah, don't throw him under the bus. That was very much all you, Dan. We had Fulham in Japan with how many crosses? Richard Sol Bamba gave us no Bournemouth supremacy, which I did like. Mm. Jakob Kruper with sweet, sour cherries. Kevin paid homage to our French centre-back getting his first goal with Issa popping cherries. And finally, Barnaby with Start Kearney Thursday. Okay, thank you very much for those. Right, let's get into the game then. And Farrell, did you come out of the game frustrated, pleased that we managed to get a draw? 
obviously we all went into this one thinking this should be a massive three points for Fulham today. And obviously after a minute, you realise maybe this won't be the simple afternoon that we were hoping for. So yeah, what was your overall takeaway once the final whistle went? I think I've, I've felt all of those emotions pretty much since the final whistle yesterday. It felt frustrating at the time. And then as the evening wore on, when you're trying to kind of digesting it, and then you kind of feel, well, maybe it was a fair result. But then when you wake up this morning, it feels differently and it feels like such a bit of a missed opportunity. But the game went exactly to Bournemouth's plan, which is probably the frustrating element of it in the sense that, you know, they got their goal early on and then they were set up to frustrate us as possible. I mean, their low block was was so low, they might as well have been defending inside the Hammersmith end. Um, you know, if if Bournemouth are rich enough to get tickets for in the Hammersmith end, all 11 of them. But <laughs> it was... Um, it, it was... It was just set up exactly for them, you know, and the fact when our star striker and Alexander Mitrovic is coming back from, from a, a, a smallish injury, but still an injury nonetheless. And he's looking a bit sluggish. And when your, your, your options are trying to get balls into the box for, for our main man to get on the end of, and he's not feeling at his best is you're going to feel a little bit, you, you they're going to be a bit blunted uh, because of that. So, um, and then when you your other main attacking threat is coming off the bench after a pretty much a three month injury, and he's he's looking a bit sluggish, then your attacking options are are blunted as a result. Um, so maybe you take those two things as we didn't lose the game and yet we still came away with two goals, and um, is maybe only the bright spark about it. But it's the nature of the two goals, which is probably the most frustrating thing that they were painfully simple goals that you'd expect a team at our level to be able to defend, defend against really. Yeah. Izzy, the defense has gone from against forest. We were a bit like, we were so happy with the win, but we were like, mm, not the best. The Newcastle was a shit show where we could kind of like write that off. Where it was 10 men. West Ham was like, oh, the defense wasn't good again, but decisions. Yesterday, I think if anyone was in any doubt that we, um, or any denial that we have a defensive problem, there's now no denial. It's pretty plain and clear, and there are no excuses for what happened yesterday. Our defense is all over the place. Yeah, it's interesting because actually I was in the press conference before the match as well. And it seemed like Marco Silva was in denial about the crisis defensively as well. So that's definitely been a wake-up call for him. But he was kind of saying, you know, I, he, we were saying the situation wasn't too bad. You know, he was like, oh, we just need to tinker a few things here and there. Um, but yeah, that was a big smack in the face for him. And he was just... Um, and obviously, like he did make that decision to take out Tosin for Diop. I thought that made sense. We needed to try something different for sure, because I think... Now we've only kept one clean sheet across 11 games in all in all competitions. So something definitely needed to change. And then obviously we make that change. And then I was like, yeah, positive, made a change. And then we concede the fastest Premier League goal of the season, uh, one minute, three seconds. And I was like, oh, shit, like the <laughs> worst possible outcome. And we just looked completely asleep. And yeah, it, it's still a, a massive problem for us. And also the players were saying it as well after the match. Um, we spoke with Anthony Robinson. And that was the big, that's the big thing for them as well. Apparently it's really massively that's spoken about in the dressing room, the defensive issues at the minute. So it's obviously on the players 
players' minds too. So I think there will be a big kind of defensive post-mortem this week. Um, I think there's going to be some big calls made. Um, But like Robinson himself was saying, you know, I'm still learning to play with one ankle virtually at the minute. Obviously, then we've got Tete out. Um, and then the big question is who starts at centre-back. So it is obviously the big problem for Fulham at the minute. And it'll be really interesting what happens ahead of Thursday's game, which is, is, is only uh, soon away. Dan, I saw your thread on Twitter. Uh, Fulham has retweeted it, if you want to see it, uh, where you broke down particularly the first goal, but also the second and the defensive, lap- defensive lapses that led to it. I mean, it was, I am a bit sick of seeing Dominic Solanke score a quick goal against us. I'm not going to lie. I was like, oh, not again. At least it wasn't the kickoff routine that we'll see um, replayed more than Python Kasami's goal. Um, <laughs> uh, Bournemouth um, absolutely love wheeling that one out. Um, yeah ball watching that's that's the clear clear fault here there was plenty of men in the box we weren't caught out it was not and, and look my my dad called me this morning he was like well i watched a match the day and it was it was a good goal i was like it is but come on like harrison reed particularly for me i feel culpable but there, there's other um people liable as well for, for for what happened so so talk us through i guess you might as well do both goals but let's start with Solanke's. Yeah, I think it's, it's this is the tricky thing is when, like, obviously I've seen a couple of people say it and it's hard to disagree that Harrison Reed's at fault because it seems to be that he's left in a situation when it's his man in that passage of play that gets free. But it's everyone's fault because you've got six defenders, none of whom are tracking any runners. No one seems to be talking to each other. And that, that means it's not an individual fault, which, you know, sometimes you can understand when one, one defender goes a bit rogue, steps up or is, is too deep. But in this situation, and I, I watched it three times because I, I couldn't quite believe it when I slowed it down, that at no point does anyone look at Dominic Solanke after he passes the ball to Philip Billing. Not a single Fulham player looks at him. They all see the ball go to Philip Billing towards the byline and they just sort of get sucked into him. And there's only one thing he can do in that situation was cut it back across the box. And he does that. And there's no, no Fulham player thinks that that seems to be a feasible option and just Dom Slanky just strolls through and pretty much the same thing happens in the second goal where uh, I say it in the thread, like Dom Slanky is, is a very capable striker and he's good. It doesn't need six defenders to try and dispossess him of the ball. And you, 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 you can throw a blanket over our defense in that second goal. I, I drew a little circle around them and it is literally 10 yards separating Tim Ream and the furthest away defender, Bobby Deckard over Reed. I mean, it, it's ludicrous how you can have six defenders in like the smallest part of the box possible. And Jefferson Lerma just stood on the edge of the area free. It, it, it's made me really angry. I'm sorry. Sammy. It's really, no. really bothered me. <laughs> Well, I mean, ultimately, you know, I think we're all like delighted with Fulham's start, but I think this is the time now we can start being a, a little bit critical. I mean, it was all that second goal, particularly, you know, R- R- Robinson's caught out of position and Ream goes to, to cover him. Robinson kind of comes back, but it looked like they were making up the defensive strategy kind of on the spot and no one really knew where to where to be who to mark who to pick up we always credit silver's plan going forward but farrell it feels like defensively it's just a bit make it up as you go along which is kind of the absolute opposite in every way of scott parker because he had a defensive plan no attacking plan if someone could just have a plan for both it'd be flipping brilliant (laughs) 
<laughs> Let's get Gary O'Neill involved, uh, the Scott Parker apprentice of the of the situation. <laughs> I'm not being serious, by the way, just in case anyone picks that up. But I actually feel like the defensive frailty starts earlier off for the first goal. The fact that, and this might be the fact that, um, you know, some of these players are a little bit new to the system. And I'm speaking about Dan James, that the way that uh, Mitrovic pressures the centre-back on the ball doesn't quite get there. Gives in a little nudge early doors, classic centre-forward centre play. But the ball goes out to the full-back and Dan James doesn't know whether to stick or twist. And um, it was quite late by the time he actually decides to go, but he kind of half goes and that leaves hit whoever it was on the outside of him to pick up the ball um, pick up the ball behind him and then have that chance to drive at our defence. And that's where the problem sign kind of start from there. And this is no criticism. I don't think that the goal is Dan James' fault. There's a lot of things that happen from there. But without that, without that simple thing that probably comes from just getting him more introduced into the system, you might think that after this time that... Uh, after all this time, he might be into that. But these are small little things that can have a real big impact, especially at this level, because teams will be looking to exploit things like that. Um, whereas maybe in the past, you think about back to the, you know, we always talk about the Roy Hodgson season, you know, the Roy Hodgson years and how well everyone in the system knew exactly what they were supposed to do at any given time. But it shows that how you can't just bring anyone at this level, just slot them into a team. And they're going to know exactly what they're going to do in every situation. It does take time to to get into it, that's for sure. And yeah, um, it's it's those sort of like mini things that can that can have a huge impact. And you know, it leads to the fact that Bournemouth go one 0 up, and then they can set up with their massively low block, and that's the style that they want to play and exploit things. And Solanke was very clever at sort of every time he picked up the ball. We saw it last season as well. Um, it's particularly against Coventry at home and at Preston, where they settled with that low block. But as soon as they won the ball back, they knew exactly what to do. They like they like to play behind our fullbacks and uh, go one on one against players like Tim Ream or Tosin, or as we saw yesterday, it's a D up. And yeah, we saw it again today. Oh, yesterday, I do. Hmm. I do. I do think we should preface some of it with the fact that the injuries have have caused problems here because we've just not had a settled back four at any point this season. And that that's where I think these issues do stem from is that defending is a, is a collaborative thing, right? You need everyone in the defense doing their job, communicating with each other. You need a leader in there marshalling everything. And I think yesterday was a result of that. I mean, that back four has never played together off the top of my head. And no. so, I, I mean, it's a complete mishmash of players. You've got Issa Diop, who's maybe perhaps more used to playing on the left side of a defence, playing on the right side. You've got Bobby Deckard over Reed at right back. It, it just, it's, it's a mess and you can see it in the goals we concede because no one seems to know what their duties are. And that's where it sort of felt like we were trying to just like fires were popping up and we're just, everyone was racing to try and put them out instead of actually trying to delegate tasks. You know, in that first goal, it would have been very easier to defend if someone just goes, right, it's a deal just decides, right, I'm going to go to the ball. Tim Ream, you drop off, you track the runner. And again, same with the second goal. Someone has got to be marshalling that defence and, and dictating what's happening. Because otherwise we'll just keep conceding goals like that. Because the second goal, there's no 
nuance in it really at all from Bournemouth. They don't have to do anything. If you make it that easy for teams to create chances against you, you will just keep conceding goals in the Premier League. And is he, like, you think back, isn't that long ago to, to games like Brighton, where I thought that this Fulham team, even Liverpool to, to an extent, really worked together, was really gelled as a unit. Like we attacked, defended as an 11. And, and I guess it is just down to the injuries why we've lost some of that fluidity, that kind of cohesion is the word I'm looking for as, as a team. It has to be down to the injuries. I, or, or is Marco Silva doing something wrong? Definitely. I think like, I, re- I kind of, in my reports, I've not been saying yet that Fulham are in their injury crisis, but it kind of feels like we are actually. And Marco really, I think, needs to admit that as well. And he was kind of saying, you know, it's a chance for other players to pop up. And, you know, it's it's not our fault because like, we haven't had that that starting eleven gelling together again. Obviously, maybe Harry Wilson coming back, seeing Harry Wilson and Mitro together, maybe we are getting it back again. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It just... it. It really worries me a bit that he says that it's going to be a chance for other players and things like that. And it doesn't seem like in the absence of, of not just defensively, in the absence of Mitro, Vinicius doesn't really step up. So, um, yeah, it'll be a, it'll be a massive test of, of Marco's management in this run up to, to the World Cup to see if he can cut it when he hasn't got the quality to, to fall back on and he's got to make these managerial decisions that, to see if we can kind of weather the storm of the, of the next run of games because the next run of games that we have are absolutely massive. They're crucial for us because it, what is it? Everton leads. I don't know what order Everton leads. Villa and leads Villa Everton. Leads Everton. Thank you, Sammy. Um, right. It's, it's going to relieve that pressure when we face the likes of City, United and things like that. So it's going to be absolutely massive for Marco and and the club this this next run of games for sure. Um, let's look at um, some of the positives. In Farrell, second half, um, despite being 2-1 down at the break, I thought Fulham were massively improved. Off came Reed, on came Kearney. Um, that had a huge impact, as did Willian coming on for Dan James. And Fulham were really good in the second half. Maybe didn't create as many clear-cut chances as I would have liked. I don't think Neto really got tested, but we got that penalty. But let's let's look at that first. Did you think it was a penalty? Um, <laughs> I'm. I mean, if if the Pereira one last week was a penalty, then this one was a penalty, um, and that's the consistent message. Uh, I think there is. I think it's just. I think it's clever from Mitrovic. Really, um, they were both at it, and he used the nouse that he learned from Craig Dawson, which is a phrase I didn't think that I would say anytime soon. Um, but yeah, I thought I did think we were pretty good. We controlled the game. I think the introduction from Kearney was was clever. But I mean, an introduction of Kearney at any point is pretty is pretty clever anyway, as we've seen time and time again this season. Really, um, you know, it was so tight and congested for Fulham to get any sort of joy in the middle of the park, and you need someone who's been able to have that guile, have that uh, ability and talent to sort of get in between those lines and get in between players and create little half yards areas and nice, lovely passing. And Kenny has ticks all those, all those boxes, despite his 4.5 performance, apparently against Newcastle. Not that that rating lives, still lives inside my head after a couple of weeks. Um, but yeah. And it, 
you didn't need a player like Harrison Reed in, in that situation, especially since, you know, we know what Harrison Reed is really good at and it just wasn't for the game for him in, in the second half, especially when Dominic Solanke was playing as another defensive centre mid. That's how low that they were playing. And, you know, it, it's much better to have, have someone like Kenny. And I also thought that William was pretty, pretty impressive coming on as well. Um, you know, nice, some nice, easy touches. You know, there wasn't a lot of um, space for him to to run into. So therefore he didn't need it, need as much pace to sort of affect the game in a positive way. Um, but again, it because of the way that the game was shaping up, it meant that most of the time we just had to get good balls into the box. But with, with uh, Mitrovic probably at only about 85, 90%, it was going to be really difficult for him to win a lot of headers there. Just just going off what you said there, Faz, when um, read off for Tom Kearney, just for me, made total sense. I do think that was a really good decision by Marco. For me, it wasn't that so much that like Reed was playing really poorly. It was just that Fulham were not building up well in possession and not doing the things that we've done really well this year, you know, like battling and, and nicking the second balls. And, and it was much better ball retention after half time. And I just think this type of game and how it was playing out was just, perfect for that change really um especially as Bournemouth were just so happy to have that blistering counter-attack so I do think props to Marco Silva for making that decision and it, it was great to see um Kenny come on and inject that life into the game um Dan the only thing that I thought about the second half was I didn't see a scoring but we got back to 2-2 and whilst like we had a lot of opportunities and a lot of breaks in the box I just felt like the cross after cross after cross after cross I felt like it suited Bournemouth and, and Mepham in particular just absolutely like mopped up every single header it's, it's like moments it was exciting and obviously like there were a few moments where a little bit bit of a better ball better bounce maybe but actually we didn't carve out that on many opportunities but then again I didn't know what else Marco or the team could do because I didn't see anyone else off the bench that could really change it up he brought on Vinicius with five minutes to go which kind of had a minimal impact but yeah, it, as much as I thought we played well and there were some exciting moments, I also just was like, from about 70 minutes, I was thinking there was a kind of, there was a spell of about 60, 70 minutes where we didn't score then. And I was like, it's going to end 2-2, isn't it? Because, and, and actually I thought if one team might go and win it, it could possibly be Bournemouth because they looked so dangerous on the counter. Yeah, it felt like we started eventually sort of almost playing like a numbers game. And, and I... <laughs> I really didn't want to think about Gary O'Neill today, but he was right in one thing he said in his post-match interview, which was that we were effectively relying on something falling in the box and, and winning a second ball in the box to create a chance. And it very much did feel like that way. And I think what we've got to do better, and, and I've been thinking about this today, and it's something that me and Ben Jarman spoke about, is and something we were so good at last year, was getting into those sort of, those cutback territories, I think Faz described them as the love handles of the box. And I think that's the perfect description is, you know, inside the area on the flanks where you can then put in a lot, a much more dangerous ball into the box. Whereas it felt like a lot, like we were just shifting it sideways back and forth and putting in crosses from sort of very wide and deep areas. When you've got that many defenders in the box, it's very, very difficult to win anything in those situations, especially when up until the last five minutes, you've only got one target 
And as Faz said, that's an 85% at best Mitrovic. And I thought, yeah, Chris Meppen was brilliant. I thought, especially in the first half, he played Mitra out of the game. He defended fantastically in the second half as well. But it just felt like we lacked that little bit of creativity, just something a little bit extra to try and carve out these chances. I didn't I didn't like that we were just resorting to, to swinging balls into the box constantly because it, it's really an effective tactic against such a low block. Yeah, the, the the person that we're missing is basically Carvalho, isn't it? That, you know, are one of our main attacking threats who was influencing the opposition in those love handles as much as he was influencing my love handles too. You know, getting to that byline and making those cutbacks. Honestly, I'm going to cancel the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that means. No, I don't even know what it means <laughs> either. We, uh, can we just talk about like, you know, bylines and stuff and, you know, shortcut backs. Let's just drop this term. This is not a thing. <laughs> Fredo influenced uh, from the byline quite a lot, but yeah. then he only influenced Tim Ream's right arm for the penalty. Probably a good moment to bring up the penalties, actually. Um, Bournemouth fans <laughs> are pretty aggrieved. And, you know, what I want to do is that we were so angry last week with the VAR decisions. And I want to try this season and, and acknowledge when we get bits of luck go our way. I was chatting to someone midweek and um, he was telling me something I didn't know about, which is um, our, our dear friend uh, over at Brentford, Thomas Frank. He has <laughs> something in the changing room, which I actually kind of respect and quite like and apparently it's called the wall of justice have you guys heard about this i've never heard about this and i cover this club week in week out so please enlighten me savvy i need to ask him about this so well it might be a myth but i liked it anyway and he has a wall of justice where um he has decisions i don't know if it's in this, over a season over two seasons however where he kind of like chalks whether brentford got a decision that went for them or didn't go for them and he has it on a wall and he uses it as a way of kind of like controlling the players emotions where they kind of like don't feel like the world's against them or like they can kind of like see whether things went their way or didn't go their way anyway after last week i want to kind of have my own wall of justice where i kind of we analyze the moments where things do drop for us var calls that do go our way and so farrell there was two contentious ones yesterday. There was the pullback on Fredericks from Ream and then Tim Ream involved again. And that brilliant slide tackle we thought at the time on, on Dominic Solanke, goal saving it felt like at the time. And it does hit his arm. Do you think Fulham got away with either of them? Personally, obviously biased hat on. I thought both of them were incredibly, incredibly soft. But we were here last week lambasting VAR for not for, for allowing Skamaka's goal when it brushed his fingernail. So, you know, we've got to be fair here. The I think one of the issues with if we just talk about the Tim Ream handball is like no one seems to understand the handball rule, which seems to be much more of a problem than anything else. If seemingly obvious handballs like Mikel Antonio's uh, which was quite clear um, wasn't given even with VAR then when similar decisions that were also went with VAR went the opposite way um, I think Tim Ream's one all by it was harsh then under the letter of the law it should be given but then I'm still not sure like what is an unnatural position when you're laying 
on the ground after May, making such a good tackle. I don't, I don't know. The one, the one thing about the thing from last week actually just came up tonight during the Liverpool City game when uh, Man City's goal got disallowed uh, because there was a pullback from Haaland on Fabinho, I think it was. And then the yeah. play went on and then uh, there was a shot by Haaland and then it rebounded back to Foden to score. How is that one not seen as second phase in adverted commas when, you know, the Mikel Antonio one was in a handball situation? I find that utterly ludicrous. Why is one influencing the goal and the other one isn't? But going back to the Fulham ones, I think the, the, the Fredericks one on Ream would have been incredibly harsh. I think Fredericks makes more of it than he probably should have and looks a bit like a tit, um, quite <laughs> frankly because of it, because he just makes out like Tim Ream really properly pulls him to the ground. And I think that Tim Ream was slightly lucky, but probably just did just enough because players sort of pull on each other a little bit here and there. It's It definitely wasn't enough to completely pull him down. That's for sure. Um, but yeah, the other Tim, the other Tim Ream one with the handball, I mean, who knows with the handball these, these days. Just on our wall of justice, I feel like with Fulham and handballs, we should be given as like unlimited because wasn't the handball law actually changed less than 24 hours after that time? Yes. We were playing oh, Spurs yeah. and Lamina. Uh, I think Madger, we thought we'd got the equaliser and it did it in the build-up, like ricochet off um, Lamina's It hit Lamina's arm, but arm. basically his arm was in front of his stomach. Exactly. Um, so if it hadn't yeah, hit his hand, it yeah, would have hit his you, stomach. Yeah, you um, can't have your arm down by the side of you or whatever. So we're, we should be allowed, allowed unlimited ones. Just on the um, Frederick stuff, that was just baffling to me because just on a personal level, I swear I've seen um, him at Reem's wedding or something like that. I was just like, why are you being such a dick? Like, why are you, are you not mates? <laughs> just like, are you not, he really over-egged that. And I've seen him so many times in front of the Johnny Haynes stand in a Fulham shirt and in a Bournemouth shirt, just being an absolute snake. I thought, what's wrong with you? Like have a bit of decency in that situation. They, I, I had a very good view of him. I thought it was really, really soft. He just brushed his arm mm-hmm. and then he falls in a way that he'd been tackled with his legs on the floor or something. I just thought it, it was just baffling to me. On a, and then afterwards, after the match, I saw Fredericks and he was, um, you know, like high-fiving all the Fulham stuff, hugging them, like so pally. And I was like, you're just an absolute snake on the pitch. I couldn't believe it. I wanted to <laughs> interview him, but I, I didn't, get, didn't get around to it. But yeah. I can't imagine it would have gone down very yeah. well. So Ryan, why are you a snake? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I now have no. this image of Reem at his wedding. He's just, he's just about to like get married and then Ryan Fredericks just darts in front of him and falls over <laughs> as they're reading out the vows. <laughs> I, I will say, Sammy, one thing that, that has to be said is that Tim Ream didn't need to do that. And it's probably a silly decision for him to 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 just give him a, a little tug on the arm. And the point I want to make comes down to this whole thing about clear and obvious errors. And this is where I think this keeps me level-headed on it, is things will only be overturned if they are complete howlers, in theory, right? And so we look at, Craig Dawson's one last week. That penalty doesn't get given by VAR if it's not given on the pitch. I think the same applies to Mitrovic 
yesterday. I don't think we get that penalty if it's not given on the pitch. It doesn't get overturned. And if in that situation, Tim Ream is a judge to have given to to have fouled Ryan Fredericks and it gets given on the pitch, VAR wouldn't have overturned it either. And so I think there's two points there, which is one, you don't need to be taking that level of risk in your own area, especially at that point in the game. And two, it will even itself out. There's nothing... There's nothing sinister going on with VAR. I think there's there's problems with it, but it, there is this wall of justice for every team will even itself out. If maybe not over a year, over time, it just will because there is, there's no bias involved, in my opinion. It's just incompetence slash misunderstanding of the laws at times. I've That's too sensible, Dan. No, yeah, there's, a, there's, there's a, a conspiracy against us. <laughs> and they hate Fulham. <laughs> they all, they're all Brentford fans and they hate Fulham. I've heard it. I, look, look. ITK Sammy. Yeah. Right, we'll take a break there. We've got loads of questions, so we're going to get into those after the break. Fulhamish is brought to you by Green King, your home of pub sports. They've got over 900 sports pubs across the country because Green King is where the fans go, showing every broadcast game for Fulham. So head down to your nearest pub and you can enjoy every live sporting event from BT and Sky Sports on tap. And if you download the Green King season ticket app, you can receive a free drink when you register and get 10% off a great range of drinks one hour before, during and after any match. So head to the app store and search season ticket to download the app. And when registering, if you use the promotion code Fulhamish, one word, capital letters, as a listener of this show, you'll get an additional £5 off when you spend £15 on drinks. So make sure you download the Green King season ticket app, use the code Fulhamish, that's all one word, capital letters, and you'll get an additional £5 off when you spend £15 on drinks. That's from Green King, is where the fans go, your home of pub sport. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Part two of the Fulhamish podcast. Sammy James here with Izzy Barker, Dan Cook and Farrell Monk. Just before we get into the questions, uh, I think you'll like this. Richard Jolly tweeted tonight, since Bournemouth lost 9-0 to Liverpool, the only unbeaten team in the Premier League are Bournemouth. What a batshit league we are in. Um, Well done to Bournemouth and, uh, you know, all the credit. I mean, I still hope that we finish above you and that you take that final relegation place, which inevitably it's going to be a battle for. But, you know, they're doing well at the moment and uh, you've got to give them a lot of credit. Right. Let's come on to some questions then. Uh, Lowe's come in today. So thank you so much for those. Charlie Boy asks, Tossin and Diop to start on Thursday, yes or no? Bit of a surprise before the game, see Tossin dropped. Um, for Diop, I thought if Diop was going to come in for anyone, I thought it was going to be Tim Ream, but, um, you know, Marco knows best. So, Dan, what do you think this pairing is going to be going forward? Because it's, uh, it's a tough one to call. It's a really tough one. And going back to this whole idea of having a consistent back four, I can understand why Tim Ream kept his place because in general, the consensus is that he's been the better centre-back. However, if you're thinking long-term, the partnership has to be Issa Diop and Tosin 
because it's a deal cost £15 million and Tosin is probably one of our biggest assets when you take into account he's a homegrown English centre-back who has got a pretty high ceiling. And so I think Marco's put himself in a bit of an awkward situation now because it's if if we move to Tosin and Issa Diop, it's a game later than it maybe should have been. So it's going to take them a game extra to get up to speed playing with each other. And that's where I don't quite understand why he ended up going with that decision. If he wants to to stick with with Reem and Issa Diop, then I understand, but it's got to be a long-term thinking because if we do it for another two games and we decide it doesn't work, then we're shifting to a new back four again. And it's just going to be it's going to continue being disjointed. So ultimately, yes, I would like to see Tosin alongside Issa Diop because I think they are the long-term option at centre-back in general. You don't spend £15 million on someone to have them sit on the bench. So I think you've got to bring the two of them in together because that's what the transfer window was geared around, them as the centre-back pairing. And it's going to have to happen. Otherwise, it's just going to be this constant chopping and changing the back forward does not work. For me now, Diop is definitely the one that keeps his place next uh, starting and in the next match. I think it's between actually um, Reem or Tussin. I think... um, I'd actually, the Bournemouth game, despite the opening goal, it turned out to be an un- unreal performance for Diop stats-wise. I think 100% dribbles completed, 100% tackles won. And I just think I've been really impressed with him, with his bulwark, he's better in possession than, I, than I'd actually presumed he was going to be. He's, you know, good confidence boost to get that goal as well. So I think that will be a, a massive boost in our next game. And was just generally solid in defence and we have looked so vulnerable. So I think Diop's definitely put down a marker for him starting regularly now. That was just his first home start as well. I'm going to slight. I felt yesterday he was one pass away from ballooning it past Burnt Leno. Like it was quite remarkable how he seemed to get away with everything he did. So part of me is like, is that just his style? Um, I saw someone on Twitter say, like, you remind me of Philip Senderos. And there is huge Senderos vibes of like a good defender. But my God, you like make my heart stop about 15 <laughs> times a game. So like, I can understand that his stats were good. And he got himself out of every situation. But it was always like, <gasps> oh, flipping out and I mean like maybe that is just the style of defender he is Farrell so like I, I don't dismiss what you said is he I think ultimately like on reflection yes but my word <laughs> like I just was terrified every time I had the ball yeah unusual style on the ball which is I, that's a perfect summation of what what we're saying like I don't think he's bad on the ball that's for sure. There was an interesting point when I was queuing up to get into the stadium yesterday and the people had obviously just seen the starting lineup and they were talking about it and they were like, wow, it's a deal for, for Tosin. Um, they said, um, oh, but Diop's not that good on the ball, nor is he a threat from from set pieces. And then he actually <laughs> gets, and then he actually ends up scoring, scoring a goal. And, and especially after the Forest game where he, you know, uh, progressive yards on the ball was like doubled anyone else in the league or or, or something yeah. like that. Um, but yeah, absolutely, a hundred percent agree. Like it, it, it was just it was such an unnatural, unusual way of watching someone play football on the ball. But it was it was like none of it was bad. But it looks like he was just about to dribble directly into their strikers three or four times a game. 
Even his yeah. celebration of the goal was unnatural. He was just like, didn't know what to do with himself. He was just darting about. <laughs> <all the different players. laughs> oh, it was sweet though. I mean, like, also the other, other person that I did have, like, are you the same player? Was a bit Zat Knight as well. Like, I didn't know. Maybe yeah. there's like Zat Knight was also pretty accomplished, but also made your heart stop about 15 times a game. I mean, Dan, you kind of winced when I said Philippe Senderos. Was that because you disagreed or because you were just wincing at the thought of uh, the, the memory of Senderos playing? For it, us? It, it was entirely the memory of Philippe Senderos. Oh, okay. That is all. <laughs> Still scored a flipping great goal against Palace that one time, though. So um, better than Paitim Kasami's, I hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the it was the best goal that game. Everyone talks about Sidwell, and it was it was, it was Philip Senderos for the scissor kick. Um, next question, which I think is on everyone's lips. Um, two different questions, basically answering the same. Chris Harris says, "Do we need a different starting pair in midfield against teams we should be beating?" Um, Reed and Polina versus Kearney and Polina, uh, and Romeo Dunn um, just says, "Does TC come in on Thursday?" My opinion is yes. Midfield looked leggy first half, and TC controlled the game in the second. Farrell, is this um, an obvious call? for Thursday or is a little bit reactionary? I guess Villa is another game where I would be expecting Fulham to have a good chunk of possession. And I think TC on Thursday makes sense, but also I, I'm always a bit wary of just like, right, let, let's change it for Thursday. TC had a great 45 minutes and not kind of trusting the process when Reed and Polina have been really solid all season. Well, to the first point, teams we should be beating... The thing is, I would say to that is that we've just said about Bournemouth being the undefeated team in the league. So there's probably a lot of a lot of other teams who probably be saying the same thing and haven't been able to do it. But I mean, the th- the thing is, if you are the thing is about the Tom Kearney question is like, and I'm a I'm a huge fan of Tom Kearney. I don't know if I've mentioned on this podcast at all, even tonight. But is He's, if you asked me the same question a few weeks ago, I would say absolutely 100% in for Pereira. But I think yesterday was Pereira's best game for us, all in all. I thought he was very productive on the ball. And I've been a bit of a bit of a critic of him, especially in the first few games of the season. Against Wolves, he was particularly poor, but has slowly come into the system more and more. Got his goal last week. But I think yesterday showed what he was all about. He was very, very good on the ball. There was a lot of uh, good passing. Uh, he was link-up play with everyone around him, was excellent, and he really unsettled Bournemouth's back line, especially in the first half. Um, but now that kind of makes me think, well, I don't want to drop Pereira now. Um, but it's it's so difficult to um, drop either Paulinho or Harrison Reed. Um, when they have had such a good season to date. The only reason is that I would actually put in Tom Kearney is for to rest one of them, but I don't think I would rest Paulina, I would rest Harrison Reed. And the other thing is, is that Tom Kearney has been really, really good coming off the bench this season. And some players are just like that at this moment in time. But I wouldn't be too disappointed if Tom Kearney starts on Thursday. I think either decision is absolutely fine. Is that why you always put me on the bench? <laughs> uh, I mean, we don't play football together anymore because you're so annoyed with me putting you on the bench. So, <laughs> uh, Dan, it's hard to say this without it sounding like I'm putting TC's performance down, which I'm not. But a large reason why I think he was so effective and he was so brilliant is because Bournemouth allowed him to be. 
right? Bournemouth retreated completely. We had all of the ball and TC is always going to thrive in that situation. He didn't have to do anything defensively. And I think that's the big point is that starting against Aston Villa, if he's playing as as we did in the second half alongside Polina, he is going to have to have a certain amount of defensive output through that game. And that's the trade-off you've got. And that's the really tricky thing is if we thought we looked light in midfield yesterday with Harrison Reed on the pitch and we were opened up too easily, that's going to be worse with TC in there. His 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 value on the ball is huge, but his value off the ball at times can can leave you wanting more. And we saw it in that Premier League season when he played alongside John Seri. Like neither of them wanted to defend, and it caused us problems. And so, I think it's a really tricky one for Marco because Villa aren't going to come and stick eleven men behind the ball from minute one. On, on Thursday, they're going to try and get at us. And that's a really dangerous trade-off there. And especially against a team that really does congest the middle of the park. They're quite midfield heavy Villa. I just wonder if the legs of Harrison Reed might be more valuable than the quality that TC provides on the ball. And so then, as Faz says, the question is, I think is more, is it TC in for Pereira as opposed to in for, for Harrison Reed? This isn't a question, but I just want to read this out from Mark Holliday's. I do quite like it. He says, the sooner we can keep a consistent team, the sooner we'll be back to getting results like the beginning of the system. If we have a consistent team, one that played a few games together, knows each other and the system uh, will help us. Too many changes have derailed us onwards and upwards. Uh, I like that a lot. Thank you. Um, There's a lot of questions as well. Um, about Willian. Gordon asks, do you think Willian would come in as a number 10? His skills, control and passing ability would frighten centre-backs with Mitro feeding off him and vice versa. Need more scoring power in the centre. Um, is I'm not sure that Willian's the answer at number 10. However, I thought he was fantastic yesterday and just like, it's just the old class, isn't it? Every, like he comes on and like, okay, the pace might have gone, the legs might not be there. But I think he showed Dan James up a bit yesterday. Yes, Dan James might have all the pace in the world, but actually he's an intelligent footballer. And um, I think he's going to be such an asset for us this season. But yeah, also we might as well ask Gordon's question, which is, do you think you see him as number 10? William just doesn't stop being a baller, does he? Like he just <laughs> hasn't lost that ability. Um, and I think he really came on and just shored things up and showed the young buck in in Dan James, how it's done, but um, yeah, I think he's he's just he just has a really calming present he, presence. He's able to pick a pass to Mitro that's just you know inch perfect. And like you say, I think he's just been a really really smart signing, and he's going to bring a lot to us this season. I know behind the scenes he gets on really well with Marco, um, gets along really well with all the Portuguese speaking players. I saw him in the sort of mix zone bit after the game and they were all having a massive laugh and joke led by William. So he's obviously made, had a, having a huge impact off the pitch as well. But um, yeah, no, I'm really pleased to see him, see him at the club. And um, maybe we need to do a full mission night out at his restaurant because he's got a restaurant in London somewhere. I think it's called Babu or something. Uh, Kevin and Babu. What? Yeah, what? Mm. I think it's Babu. Babu. Kevin and Babu. It's called Babu. What's the um? What's the budget saying, Sabi? Can we do a trip to? The- <laughs> um, you think you're stretched from up- Pizza Pilgrims to to <laughs> Willie Ann's restaurant? Yeah, I was gonna say that we um we went to Pizza Pilgrims for a Fulhamish <laughs> night out last week, which you know is great, but I mean it might be a bit of a stretch to go to. Is it is it called Babo or Babu? Uh, Babu. I- Babo. Babo. 
Babo, sorry, yeah. And um, he owns it with David Louise, I believe. So, yeah, maybe we should have a little trip there. But no, I, yeah, I love William, I think. Yeah. Is it this one? A Taste of Italy in Mayfair, London. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. I'm pretty sure one of my colleagues did like, oh, yeah, I need to test it out for a piece or whatever. So, um, yeah, I don't mind testing it out for Fulhamish if you want, if you want an article or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, um, it does say on the website we are temporarily closed. Oh, So no. um, I'm not sure what's what's happened there. I mean, the food does look very nice and fancy, but uh, yeah. What's happened to Willian's restaurant? We'll find out. I'm interested that because he now has said he wants to be an agent, is he going around like the away dressing rooms and being like, you lads looking for representation, by the way? Um, <laughs> I didn't know he's that. He's actually looking for kitchen staff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I digress. I feel like someone else pick up from, from where I left off in terms of the No, 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 you're fine. Oh, no, you're fine. I mean- we I'm all talk. We, we talk all things Fulham, and if that's a if that's a night out at, at Willian's restaurant, I'm all for it. It does look absolutely like gorgeous. You know, there's like some alfresco dialing. It's on Abel Mile Street. Okay, we'll go. We'll go to Babo <laughs> Restaurant once it's reopened. Maybe Willian can sponsor us to go there. I mean, he doesn't need to sponsor. He doesn't need to pay us. We've done enough promotion anyway on this podcast for free. Um, let's go on to this topic, which we've not actually touched on too much, given that it probably was one of the big um, news stories before the game. Um, Andrew Henderson asks: Are we putting too much on Mitro? Seems like he's the talisman, and we're risking him by bringing him back a few days early, as the alternatives don't seem properly bedded in yet. But how do we get them bedded in without playing them? Um, um, Dan, it is the million dollar question. Mitro wasn't fit enough yesterday, but on the same hand, he did win a penalty and score it and also had lots of chances. And for me, I think 80% Mitro is still better than no Mitro. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one because like, football is is a 90 minute sort of story, right? There's there's narrative, there's everything that goes on and and theoretically everything that goes on in the game leads to the final result. But it's ultimately those singular moments in games that decide the result of football matches and that piece of smart play from him in the box to win the penalty and then to put it away. And to win the free kick where the, um, where it came from as well, yeah. just as Jonathan Pierce on match of the day went, Mitro's not looked fit today. Then he wins a free kick. Then he wins a penalty and he scores a penalty. I was like, well, you, <laughs> thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. And, but I think that's so valid. It's, it's that, that nous and, it's those moments in games that define results. And ultimately, I think it sort of justifies his selection. I think there's something to be said that he probably negatively contributed overall in the game. If you look at passages of play, he wasn't able to link up the play as usual. He was out-muscled and out-thought by Chris Meppen, which you don't often say a centre-back does to Mitrovic. And I think that's because he wasn't fit for that physical battle. He very much played within himself. But him scoring the penalty is what's led to us coming away with a point. And so I think it's justified. If it negatively impacts him going forward, so if if 80% Mitro has to stay at 80% for the next three games because of it, I think then there's questions that need to be asked. But if it's a case that we knew he's going to be fully ready for Villa, he's a little bit of a risk for Bournemouth. And I guess it it paid itself off by him getting us a point. I don't think like the pressure to have Mitro playing every minute of every game is coming from Marco. I think it very much comes from himself. And he's like, look, I'm fit. Like I want to get in because on the Friday was only his first training session back from in- injury with the team. And I was certain he wasn't going to, 
play or he'd come on. I didn't think he'd start. Um, so I think that very much does come from him as a player and wanting to be involved so much. But um, um, but the problem is we don't have backup at the minute. Marco is saying that he feels like he brought, he's brought in Vinicius too early. Like it's all been too early for him, you know, because of the injury crisis with Mitro, he was kind of forced to do that. Um, but he isn't, the, the feeling I get, I think we can see it as fans, but also it's being said by our manager that Vinicius just isn't ready yet to, to make that step up. So I guess we're going to have to put up with 80% Mitro for the, and, and, and like you say, it's not a, a bad option at all. We're getting a penalty and, and he looked unreal as, as always, but um, it's a difficult one. And it just completely highlights that's was uh, what I was kind of saying, injury crisis that we have at the minute for sure. And like, I, th- I think the last thing of it, we don't know whether he's 80% because of the injury or 80% because he literally hasn't played any football or done any running in two, three weeks now, which will have an effect on on his ability to not look sluggish. And if it's the latter, then um, the only way he's going to get back to 100% is via game time. Um, so it's you're kind of in a, bit of a weird situation in the sense that well do you play do you not play him but then how do you get him game time to get him back to 100% or do you or do you not play him to to help him get that little bit extra like off the field fitness um and then play him when he's a bit better i i don't know but hopefully it hopefully it is that situation that he just needs that little bit of match practice and a little bit more sort of just loosening up the tight muscles to get him going and he'll be backfiring on Thursday. One final question, this one from Piers Butler. I'll go to you this, uh, Farrell, as uh, our FST representative here on the chat. Um, he says, upper tier of the new Riverside stand seems to have been opened without fanfare and is leading to dangerous overcrowding as the rest of the stand is not complete. Had to queue for over 10 minutes to get in and miss the start of the game. Given the ch- price charge for a season ticket, it's poor. Um I mean, I have, it's my first game seeing the upper tier of the uh, Riverside stand opened and that's quite cool um, to, to see it, but maybe it feels a bit like they have opened this before it's before it's ready. And that would be reasonable if everyone had paid 20 quid to get in. But when you're paying those kind of prices, it's, it is a bit poor if, if the actual experience isn't, isn't there. I mean, it's kind of like, Oh yeah, no, you, we, you're kind of not going to get the full experience here, but we're going to charge you like you are. I mean, the club are trying to get a return on their, they're huge investment, aren't they? As as quickly as possible, um, you know they they haven't relayed to the trust about when they're planning to do a phased opening. You know, at the start of the season, we didn't even know whether there will be seats available in the upper tier or anything. And all of a sudden, that they started announcing that there would be tickets available for Chelsea. I think was the first one, um, and now they're sort of like slowly integrating more seats. But they 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 want they now realise that they can now have more seats available that they can sell and that's you know that's their prerogative and and whatnot but you know it's their prerogative how they're going to set the the ticket prices as well and you know we've seen how much they're charging not just in the riverside stand but the rest of the stadium yesterday and people they're getting to the levels now where people are expecting a bit more for you know a bit more bang for their buck really and if you if you're paying a hundred pounds you do need you do expect a level of service and probably the people that are spending that amount of money uh in the riverside stand are expecting more even if it is just a shell of a shell of a stand really as a complete aside 
something I don't like about it is the fact that it makes it look like we can't sell out our ground because we've got like just like a weird little pocket <laughs> on the top tier. And it's almost it almost makes it look like our we've built this whole stand and we can't get any people because visiting fans have no idea that the stand isn't finished yet. They just rock up and they look to their left and there's like 200 fans in a tiny little square on this top tier. It looks ridiculous. I mean, surely you can work out though that like, that's a bit weird. They've, they've sold out all the other stands, but they've got a massive gap in the top tier. I think most would probably realize, I mean, you've got to be a pretty like brain dead fan. I know, I, I don't get me wrong. There's probably enough that are, but surely people have realized that. There was a point on the on Football Focus yesterday because they did it from Craven Cottage yesterday, and it was a really good. Like they covered like a lot of the the the, the ground. Alex Scott was brilliant in she, terms of like. It was her like, birthday, wasn't it? And she had a massive birthday. Yeah, because I ate some of it. They had it, they had it in the <laughs> what, with, without her noticing. Was was that your camera? Someone just opened it up in the press room after, and I was like, "Yoink! I'm having a bit of that." It was it was delicious. But anyway, sorry, carry on. <laughs> That, I was I was literally going to mention this birthday cake because she was just about to mention about the new Riverside stand and literally at that point and this is probably all the marketing marketing people are probably waiting for that moment where they're advertising the new Riverside stand all of a sudden some producer comes on with a cake and starts singing happy birthday which then Izzy ate, or ate yeah. all yeah yeah which Izzy had the whole thing um, was, what, what, what cake are we talking I mean we're, this it is a Flemish like podcast it was a was Vicky it? sponge it was a Vicky sponge Yay. <laughs> someone someone did their homework at Football Focus didn't they someone did their homework yeah and got it was, the right it was cake. just delicious um I just want to come on to one more question, which we got, and, and this is changing the tone um, a little bit. And it's one of those questions that you don't like to see it, but I did hear it. And I think it's important to address it. Otherwise, I think we're doing you guys a disservice. But um, I won't say who sent us the question because I want to save them from getting any backlash on this but they said I was really sad to hear two occasions of homophobic chanting at the back of H5 today which was I might as well say it the Chelsea rent boy chant um I'd be interested to hear the pod's opinion on it and how to manage it now I don't think there's an awful lot that we can say because ultimately at the end of the day it is homophobic and maybe people don't know that but, but ignorance is not necessarily a, a, an excuse. It is homophobic. I did a bit of research on this and it is legitimately now the, the Crown Prosecution Service have gone so far to say that that is a hate crime. I'm not here to preach on anyone how they should chant, but it is bad and it is going to come full circle at Fulham and it will get heard by the press and we will be in the news for it because I've se- you've seen Leeds fans, Liverpool fans, other fans you do that chant and they've been absconded for it. So it will happen to Fulham. I know that we sing it. I don't join in and it's up to people, their own conscious, whether they do. I'm not going to sp- go here and preach that people shouldn't, but yeah, it, it's, I don't like it. I don't like it at all, but I mean, ultimately you can do and say what you want and you will be accountable for it. Um, Izzy looks like you wanted to come in here. Yeah, but I do think it is important that we do say something actually. I'm pleased that someone said has got in touch with the pod and I'm, I'm pleased that you've mentioned it, Sammy, because actually if it goes in the press and things, all right, it's a, a big story, whatever, but actually people don't take that much notice. It's people like us, everyday fans, calling it out that makes a difference because it's embarrassing if you're getting called out by I don't know a fr- like a someone your age for doing something like that and it does make you think so I think maybe if you hear something like that and you 
you don't have to, but calling it out does make a, a big difference and is a real strong impact. Um, when I do appreciate though, that like at that moment, like who it, like it, you've got to be a flipping brave person to, to stand up in the Hammersmith end and say something. No, right? I, I, I agree, but I still think that person has friends who wouldn't, who they're getting along with. So if it's your mate, then say something. No, I, I, I agree. Think- is And I, I think I, I, it's something that I, I was feeling at the time because I was very much within that. So I sit within that section of H5 and it came up and it was one of those where it's a smattering. You can hear it spread. And it's really tricky because you look around and you see other people who are equally disappointed and, and ashamed and upset that you're you're hearing your own fans singing that. And it's tricky because you don't know in that situation, if you say something, what the reaction is going to be. And, but I think as fans, we do have to do better because we don't want to be seeing that. We, you know, we, we have got a, a fan base that there are LGBTQ plus members within it. And if they're hearing these sort of chants at our games, they're not going to want to come. And you suddenly, you start to ostracize people who already have it tough. And so I think we, there's something we have to do as a club. And I think it's important that Fulhamish do speak about it. And, and, you know, if there's a backlash, then so be it. But I think we, we have to put this out. The important thing to, to cap that all off, because obviously I totally agree with what everyone else here is saying, is that if you do see any, see any bad behaviour, racism, homophobia, whatever it might be, and you, you're you not going to stand up in the middle of the Hammersmith end and berate people for it, but is to, there's a number to text and you text, I think it's 60066 with the word Fulham and then whatever it might be. I think you put the nail on the head there, Dan. If an LGBTQ fan is in the Hammersmith end and feels uneasy because of a chant, then that's not right. That's not right. So um, I won't say who sent the message in, but but thank you for for bringing it to our attention. And um, yeah, we'll 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 see what happens. But yeah, thank you very much for getting in touch with the pod. We'll take a quick break, and afterwards we're going to look at Aston Villa on Thursday. Part three of the Fulhamish podcast, Sammy here with Iz, Dan and Farrell. Let's look ahead then to Aston Villa on Thursday at the Cottage, a 7.30pm kickoff. Uh, it's live on Amazon Prime if you want to li- uh, if you want to watch it, if you're not at the game. Um, a lot of weird kickoff times this week. It's that kind of Amazon Prime week where they put games at either 7.30 or 8.15. Um, the 8.15 is even more obtuse, really. Um, but hey... Amazon's got the bucks and uh, they decide when the football happens. Uh, It then means that's why the Leeds game next Sunday is at two o'clock. Not because either team's in Europe. Uh, I don't think there's much danger of that, Um, but that's why it's then been knocked back. But hey, TV pays the bills. So Villa, um, Dan, they're pretty shit. Um, They lost 2-0 today to uh, Chelsea. Um, They've won, I think, a couple of games this season, um, wins against Southampton and Everton at home. So not exactly a huge amount to write home about. And, and Steven Gerrard is under an enormous amount of pressure. I, I actually wouldn't be surprised if he's sacked before the Fulham game. When you look at their upcoming run of fixtures, they've got us, then uh, Brentford, Newcastle. They've got a little run of three games where they'll think they can get some points from. They might just be thinking, let's get a new manager bounce because it's, yeah, it's gone pretty stale and uh, they're pretty unhappy uh, at Villa Park. They are. They're very unhappy. And it, it, I feel like he is, he is in line for the sack massively. And part of that is because the fans have turned big time. They are, they're not a fan. But, 
today was actually so much better from them. I watched I watched them against Chelsea today, and they did play a lot better than they have for the majority of this season. Their big problem is that one, they seem completely incapable of putting the ball in the net. Like they're just they're not scoring goals, which is always going to be a problem. And two, they're conceding goals. So this is like perfect for Fulham, right? We're coming up against a team who who can't create chances and also can't stop other teams creating chances. So it is set up pretty nicely. And I think, if anything, we've probably got more of a chance of winning this one than we did Bournemouth, because Bournemouth are coming into it off, with, off the back of a run of form. It's not going to be easy. They, they've still got very good individual players within that side who can cause any team problems. You know, you look at Ollie Watkins, who's a very good striker. You've got Jacob Ramsey, who's come through and been performing very well. You've got players in there who are out of form, but still at the core of it, good players. So we're going to have to work hard for it. But likewise, I mean, you'd struggle to pick a team that you'd want to play at home more right now than Aston Villa. And so you've got to be looking at three points. I mean, Farrell, their recent run of form looks like a team that's quite tough to beat. I mean, I know that Villa fans would want a lot more than just scraping draws. But before today, they drew away at Forest. They drew away at Leeds. They got a winning at Southampton. Um, they drew at home with Man City as well. Like... As much as Villa aren't playing well, this is not a oh guaranteed three points. This is a team bang out of form that's lost five games in a row. Like, yes, they can't score and they've got big problems and they are well below expectations of what that fan base would expect given the money spent. But actually, yeah, this is not a game where we're looking at it and going, right, yeah, easy three points. Here we go. No, not at all. Um, they, like Dan quite rightly says, they're at like, I mean, I didn't watch the game today, but it doesn't surprise me that they didn't play that badly because they haven't like played that badly they have that symptom of controlling games and but without being able to score really um that one against uh forest was pretty much a one-sided affair but when you have two goal scorers of the ability of Watkins and Danny Ings and they're both not really scoring goals then you have a massive issue they've also got the 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 issue that Leon Bailey who was out for pretty much the entirety of last season is still starting to come back from that injury and a player of his quality now he's got a couple of like 90 minutes under his belt I think he's going to be able to he's probably going to cause us a lot of issues um, some a player that pretty much got under the radar because he was forgotten about because of that injury last season, but a guy that comes with enormous pedigree from the Bundesliga, um, and that's my worry now is that now he's back fit again. Um, it's not something we're going to be be prepared for, but I think Fulham are capable, um, especially now that Harry Wilson has a decent amount of minutes under his belt. Now that Mitrovic is is has got minutes under his belt and. We do have a fairly settled side apart from one or two positions. I think it'll be a really, really good contest on, on Thursday night. Definitely something just lastly, what we can expect from Aston Villa is we are going to feel the full wrath of their fury when they face us because not only is Steven Gerrard under pressure and he's had boos from fans, I don't think the chance has specifically been about firing him, but there's obviously been boos, but his own players, there's so many cracks in the dressing room. His own players are virtually conspiring against him. Tyro Mings was in 
a culprit for both goals, uh, Chelsea goals today. Um, and I know they've got a difficult relationship anyway. So what state must they be in now? How fuming must Steven Gerrard be in the players? Those who don't get along anyway. And then he's culprit for, for two of the Chelsea goals. Um, so the cracks are really forming. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing that we're going to face a really, really angry Villa side, but we can definitely expect them to be very fuming for sure. Just one thing I wanted to add about Steven Gerrard as well, which it, it very much smacks of a manager who's just under so much pressure, is what he said before the game yesterday. So the pre-match conference yesterday, coming into today, he said that given the situation that um, Villa are in and Chelsea are in, Chelsea should be expecting to come to Villa Park and wiping the floor with Aston Villa. And... It's just, it's just everything seems wrong at that club right now. You can't be saying that before a game in the Premier League. You, you know, you can't say that a team's going to come and wipe the floor with you because you just, you're setting such a horrible atmosphere within it that your players are going out onto the pitch expecting to get beat. So I think we, we're catching them in a really good moment. And oh god, um, that's a very clear. Yeah, I've, I've called it as well. The, the Marco Silva's, the the Portuguese manager influence. We're in a good moment, um, but. Yeah, I think we, we've got to be looking at... Hopefully they don't sack Steven Gerrard because I think that's our best chance right now is he stays in charge, they keep this bad rubber form going and, and it gives us a real chance on Thursday. Yeah, um, fingers crossed. Uh, it feels like a decent side to be playing, but I guess just always like slightly wary. That Steven Gerrard comment, that's what I was going to say, gives me shades of Martin Yole. I never forget when we lost at Liverpool and uh, he said that Fulham shouldn't be expecting to win games against Liverpool. And we were like, yeah, but don't say it. Jesus, like, it's not, not, that's not, that's not what the players want to hear, Martin. And um, pretty quickly, uh, that was, that was his end of days at Craven Cottage. So those kind we- of comments are generally, uh, generally not good. But didn't we win at Liverpool? Under Martin Yol, or am I making that up? We did, yeah. didn't we? Yeah, we did. We, yeah, I think it was an own goal by Skirtle, We lost four 0 and then yeah, and then the next season we lost four 0 We said Fulham should be expected to win games here, and yeah, literally six months earlier we did. <laughs> so he's like, "What?" Um, that was a bit of a weird thing to say, um, Martin. But anyway, he was a bit of a strange bloke, wasn't he? Anyway, um, he also he also comments. said like, "If I get sacked, my life won't change, so I don't mind so much." I mean, yeah. I mean, he just says it like it is, but sometimes like rein it in a little bit, Martin. Anyway, we've gone massively sidetracked. Um, Just have a quick look at what we expect, what you'd like Fulham to line up with. Uh, I know we kind of judged the Kearney thing earlier and we also discussed the the deoptosin rumours. So just maybe go around the floor and and what changes you would make um, for Villa on on Thursday. Farrell, I'll start with you. Uh, I'd bring in Harry Wilson for Dan James. Um, I'd be tempted to bring in William as well uh, for for Cabano. Um, but again, I, I wouldn't be too disappointed if Cabano still plays as well. That's fine with me. The only other the only other big question mark, and I'm still not entirely sure what I would do is is the right back situation um, between our new our newest right back Bobby Decker Dover Reed uh, and. Kevin, not Williams Restaurant and Babu. Um, uh, I'd, it's such a difficult one. I don't want to end up changing too much. Um, but it, it just seems odd that Mbabu's not playing right back. But again, I still I wouldn't be that disappointed if BDR is still in that position on Thursday. 
just kind of echoing that, I think maybe a bit of an unpopular opinion, but maybe I'd like to see Mbappé start with Tete out. I know his form's like mostly been a bit poor, but we've seen so little of him and not kind of in the, under great circumstances, you know, like off the bench and playing out of position or playing with a man down. Um, I feel like maybe we need someone we can just trust a little bit more than what we're expecting of Deckard Overreed, who is being an absolute trooper. Um, but he's more of a natural fullback and against, like, I think he, he we could have created a bit a few more attacking options with him against against Bournemouth. But um, yeah, and then I'd like to see Tosin and Diop um, for the centre-back partnership and Wilson in. Um, but yeah, those would be my changes. Dan, any uh, any contrast to that? No, no, I don't disagree with any of that. I think I definitely Harry Wilson mainly for the reason that he could be playing up against Ashley Young. And I, I, I actually don't think Ashley Young is a bad footballer. He's actually been quite good for Villa this year. But it's a battle that I would expect Harry Wilson to come out on top of. And so if we could really look to try and isolate Harry Wilson against Ashley Young, I think it gives us a real opportunity to cause issues. And then, it, yeah, the, I think as it says, I, I, I'd quite like to see Kevin and Babu playing as well because despite Bobby Reed not doing anything wrong, it's he's he's got there's a limit to how much he can do playing at right back because he just isn't a right back and it does worry me why Marco Silva is is continuously not picking him because he must be seeing something either that he doesn't like or he doesn't trust him. So it's a really tricky one, but I, naturally I would prefer a, a, a tradition, like an actual right back, to play at right back and let Bobby Reed do what he does best, which is be in and around the penalty area. Yeah, I, I think it probably is time for the experiment to end, but uh, we'll, we'll see. I mean, Marco, you never know. He might get the um, best of both, and Kenny Tetting might be fit for um, for Thursday, which would obviously be um, fantastic. Um, so. We'll see. We'll see what uh, Marco goes with on Thursday. Um, and fingers crossed, Fulham can get the three points. Uh, before we finish the podcast today, we just need to name it. So, Dan, what would you like to go with? I'm going to go with Fulhamish favourite Richard Sol Bambers. No Bournemouth supremacy. Very, very good. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Sol. Been a little while, I think, since you got the podcast name. But uh, yeah, one of our favourites on the Three World Review. So good to see uh, good to see one being recognised uh, in the proper way. Uh, thank you very much to my guest today, to Izzy Barker. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, I'll get that reservation um, for, for Babo Restaurants oh, uh, sorted. Uh, Dan Cook, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Sammy. Farrell Monk, thank you very much. Lovely stuff, Sammy. Thank you very much bit of a long pod today. Um, there was an awful lot to dissect. So uh, thank you to those of you who have made it all the way to the end. Uh, a bit of a, of a marathon one uh, today, but hopefully you enjoyed uh, the extra 15 minutes than we normally do. Uh, Fulhamish will return on Friday with a pretty quick little podcast, to be honest, given the tight turnaround. Uh, Jack is going to be hosting that one with Peter Rutzler, reacting to the Aston Villa game and then previewing the Leeds game. Uh, and then obviously this podcast will be back uh, Monday. Monday evening, Tuesday morning, uh, looking back at the Leeds game and exciting stuff. I believe I'm going to be watching this game in Austin, Texas with the lads from Fulham, Texas, the Fulham, Texas Supporters Club. So I'm going to be watching the game with them and hopefully speaking to them a little bit in that podcast as well, which would be hugely exciting. A chance to meet an international supporters club. Uh, They watch all the games at a bar called Hop Squad Brewing Company. 
early kickoff. So I'm out there next Sunday. So I'm hoping to uh, yeah catch up with some of those guys and, and really get a flavour of what it's like to follow uh, Fulham from the USA. Uh, but lots of stuff to happen between then. We've got two games before that. Uh, so have a lovely week and fingers crossed Fulham can get that all-important win on Thursday. Come you whites. Come you whites.